There are plays that have their own strange destiny, far beyond their transitory success or failure. They carry along with them not only their own fate, but also that of the author and sometimes the producer as well. Mädchen in Uniform was such a play. These are the words of Leontine Sagen. For me, they encapsulate the whole idea of this podcast series, although it's the film, not the play, that I argue is so bound up in the personal stories of these fascinating women. Leontine might have felt out of her depth making a movie, but she could have had no idea in those early days how far this project would eventually propel her. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece, and this is episode eight, A Question of Casting. In the quotation just now, Leontine Zagen, actress, producer, director, describes how a single work for the theatre transformed her life. She went on to say something else that demonstrates how pivotal this film was to the lives of those involved in its making. Without it, she ponders, I should probably have remained in Germany and become a victim of the Nazis. A bit of a throwaway comment, but actually the crux of so much that is still to come. Mädchen in Uniform represents a glorious moment in the lives of many people, but a moment that is overshadowed with a degree of tragedy, mostly because of timing. But let's focus on the glory right now. Let's see how a simple, rather little cinematic project turned a whole lot of lives around and left an indelible mark in film history. Karl Fröhlich was 56 years old in 1931. His long and prolific career more or less represented the history of the German film industry. As a young man in the early years of the century, he had worked for the godfather of German cinema, Oskar Mester, as a Siemens-trained camera engineer. Thanks to his knowledge of the equipment, he was soon Mester's leading cameraman, at a time when technical know-how was everything, artistic consideration pretty much non-existent. From here on in, he grabbed every opportunity before him and carved a role for himself in the emergent industry. He made Germany's first sound movie, its first colour drama, pretty much invented the idea of a dedicated film score, was one of the industry's first and leading documentary makers. In fact, during the First World War, he flew over the battlefields filming the action with a specially adapted on-board camera. He collaborated exhaustively with other creatives, gave breaks to unknowns in whom he saw promise, including several women writers and producers, practised a slavish devotion to giving audiences what they wanted, and ultimately, fatally for his long-term reputation, threw his lot in with the prevailing political group of the day. But more of that later. Froelich was the ultimate collaborator and opportunist, happy to co-direct if it meant creating a better finished product, hiring the most reliable and promising staff, and often working on a collective basis, with the aim of turning every contingency into a solidly bankable certainty. He is filmmaker, entrepreneur, showman, mover-shaker, freelancer, you name it. That's how movies started, and that's how he still worked. He had owned production companies, including one which he co-ran with Germany's most beloved leading lady, Henny Porton. 
He'd sold his first one years before to Ufa, the dominant German film company, which made itself dominant by gathering up all the rival solo studios. In 1929, he recreated his Fröhlich film company, keenly aware of Germany's race to develop talkies, and built a soundstage at his Tempelhof studio. Here, he directed the country's first part talkie, Die Nacht gehört uns, or The Night Belongs to Us, relocating to Sicily to shoot many of the outdoor scenes of this glamorous motor racing feature. Fröhlich didn't take costly gambles. He'd already amassed enough experience to recognise what had commercial potential. Die Nacht gehört uns was also shot in French, a sound business plan not unusual at the time and ensuring a much wider cinema release and greater productivity. One of the most famous examples of one of these multi-language productions was, of course, Der Blaue Engel, or The Blue Angel, starring Marlene Dietrich and shot simultaneously in German and English. People liked working with Fröhlich, found him friendly and avuncular. He looks avuncular in pictures of this period, solidly built, thick eyebrows and swept-back white hair, wearing heavy black-rimmed glasses, sometimes in a woolly vest or a sober pinstripe suit, always neatly dressed. Both Leontine and the lead actress Hertha Thieler described him as elderly, which, speaking as a 50-something myself, sticks in the craw a bit. Nonetheless, he commanded considerable respect, and when Leontine received a call from his office to go and see him one day, she was trembling with anxiety, thinking she was being called to act in the movies. She'd got it wrong, of course. He wasn't interested in her as an actress. This is how she describes the meeting. I entered the large, airy office of Mr. Karl Fröhlich. My nervousness soon evaporated, however, when this sympathetic elderly gentleman spoke to me. He was humorous and respectful, very different from the top-notchers who had dealt with me before. He mentioned my last production, maintaining that it revealed a woman's intuition. And still, I did not know why he wanted to see me. Then suddenly came the question, will you direct this play for the screen? There was a pause. Is he mad, I thought. Then he continued. I intend buying this play for the screen and should like to keep the same cast together. The script will be written by the authoress and one of my collaborators, under your supervision and mine. But above all, I should like you to direct. Mr Froelich, I've never set foot in a film studio. I could count the pictures I've seen on my fingers. I'm not greatly interested in films. So much the better. You'll bring new blood to the enterprise. But I know nothing about technique. I'll see to that. Besides, you'll soon learn. Will you accept the offer? Thank you. I will. I love that line from Leontine. I'm not greatly interested in films. Leontine, the classical actress, the aloof artiste. It suggests a number of things. That there was still a degree of snobbery about the movie industry, despite it having long entrenched itself with audiences and despite the clear emergence of more challenging themes in the pictures. But also, I think it says that Leontine was already losing ambition and winding down a bit, accepting that she might have to make compromises rather than making waves. Another interesting speculation that emerges from this exchange is that Froelich had already approached Krista Winslow with the offer of buying the rights to her story. And importantly, 
that she'd responded positively. The collaborator Froelich mentions who will co-script is Friedrich Dammann, who is credited in the final film as F. de Andam, which appears to be the name he wrote under for the movies. He was 30 years old at the time and would go on to write scripts either singly or in collaboration with other writers well into the 1950s. Leontine now had to adapt to a new world of film production and she was surprised to find the process more enjoyable and natural than she'd first imagined. For a start, she could rely on friendly guidance from Froelich and Froelich's long-time right-hand man, Walter Zuppe. Everyone was working with the same aim, to make a good picture. Both Christa and Leontine were keen to learn and understand. They would attend conferences with Froelich and Leontine would bring all her ideas and suggestions. Her main concern was, to put it bluntly and in her words, that the play was technically weak. She now found that she could add layers in ways that had never been open to her on the stage. The creative use of sound, camera angles, close-ups, long shots. It was slowly becoming apparent that Christa's autobiographical story had the potential of becoming a better film than it ever did a play. And when Leontine had doubts or found herself bogged down in procedure, Karl Froelich would always be there to give her encouragement. Don't be modest. Let yourself go, he would say. Note down every idea, every nuance that comes to you. It must have been an interesting meeting of minds. Leontine had zero experience of films. But it's also true to say that Karl Froelich had equally no experience of the stage. I think he must have seen something novel and interesting, infusing Leontine's classical background with this brand new medium. Here's an important fact that we shouldn't let go of. Mädchen in Uniform was financed by everyone who made it and appeared in it. It was made on a cooperative basis under the name of the Deutsche Filmgesellschaft. Christa, Leontine and the cast and crew, as well as Karl Froelich himself, all sunk their money into it. The agreement was that they would get a quarter of their wages and then a share of the profits, as and when the film did well. This was not an unusual procedure at the time, among smaller production companies, and was sometimes the only way that they could make any films at all. It would be seen as an investment. If the film did well, then they could expect a pretty hefty return for their financial contribution. Nobody, certainly not Christa or Leontine, expected the film to make much of a ripple at all. But the costs could be kept low. By hiring many of the same cast members who had appeared in the stage versions, they could cut out all the bother and expense of auditions and extended rehearsals. In the end, the film came in at a pretty modest budget of 55,000 Reichsmarks. There's another issue that will not have passed your attention. The name of the film. At some point, probably relatively early on, Gestern und Heute, Yesterday and Today, became Mädchen in Uniform, or Girls in Uniform. I think we can pretty solidly lay this one at the door of Karl Froelich. He never liked the previous wishy-washy names of the play and knew full well that a film title went a long way in attracting an audience. The new name is deliberately sexually titillating and yet taken very literally also hints at the military theme and the uneasy relationship between young females and regimental constraint. Froelich was also always wary of producing anything too mawkish or sentimental anything that would put a potential viewer off. He got it spot on, of course. 
I doubt either Krista or Leontine would have put up much of a fight. Now, let's focus on the casting. Casting is at the core of the success of this film, I would argue. It's a topical subject. This year, the BAFTAs were the first major awards to recognise casting as a prize category. It's odd to me that it's taken so long, given its central role in filmmaking. The performances in Mädchen in Uniform are so outstanding and exceptional that they are as fundamental a part of its creative energy and success as the writing and direction. Getting the casting right was, to my mind, one of the main reasons that this film ignited so much emotion in its audience and became as loved as it was. But casting was always going to be slightly contentious when so many actors already felt they had a stake in the production. In her memoirs, Leontine brushes over the issue, mentioning merely that Krista Winslow saw to it that Hertha Tina, the young actress from Leipzig, was engaged for the role of Manuela. Krista Winslow saw to it. Interesting way to put it. But many years later, in interview, Hertha confirmed this line. Hertha, I gather from her interviews, was not massively keen on Leontine, and I wonder if it's based on this casting issue. Leontine wanted Gina Falkenberg for the role of Manuela. She's the one who played the part initially in the Berlin run of the stage play, directed by Leontine. Karl Froelich screen-tested Gina Falkenberg for the role, but didn't think she was right for it, and rejected her at once. Krista, who was co-scripting the film, then suggested to Karl that he might want to screen-test Hertha for the role. Hertha's was the hundredth and final screen-test for the film. She had no previous experience of such things and found it an ordeal. The test was done in silence and she was told to turn her head to the left and to the right repeatedly. She couldn't bear it and squirmed in her chair and tried to run out of the room, but Frerlich ordered her to stay. Couldn't she just say some lines, she begged. Whatever you want, he answered. Because I come from the theatre, she later recounted. I couldn't just hold a facial expression without speaking. She didn't hear for a long time and eventually called the studio. She spoke to Walter Zupper, Froelich's assistant director and colleague. Maybe you can have a small part, but not the main role, he told her. No way. Hertha couldn't take this rebuff. She wrote to Froelich and told him that while she would accept a small part in any of his other productions, she had to play Manuela in this one or nothing at all. Soon after that, while she was rehearsing at the theatre, a messenger came and brought her 200 marks and a telegram. It said, get your teeth capped, main role assured. It's not entirely clear why Froelich changed his mind, but we know that Krista, the play's author, was very keen to have Hertha in the lead role, and Hertha herself believed that Krista was instrumental in getting her the part. We can only guess at how much it rankled with Leontine to be overruled on a casting decision, but never mind. When it came to assigning second lead, the part of the teacher, Fräulein von Bernborg, Leontine almost certainly either approved it or even instigated it. And so we come to Dorothea Wieck. When I first conceived the idea of a story telling the making of Mädchen in Uniform, I toyed with pushing the film to the background and focusing on the intertwined life stories of four very different women. Krista, the Baroness, writer and artist. Leontine, the classical actress turned director. Hertha, the socialist movie star. 
and Dorothea the... the what? I searched in archives and libraries, both here and in Germany, and couldn't find very much about her at all. Knitting the facts I had about her together would barely make a chapter, let alone a quarter of a narrative. And yet she is, to my mind, one of the factors that made this film outstanding. Remember, Fräulein von Bernburg, the benign teacher in Christa's play, had been cast on stage in two very different ways, as a frumpy mum and as a butch athlete. With each casting decision, the story had a very different emphasis. Dorothea Wieck changed the emphasis yet again, and she did it simply by the fact that she was a natural, and by that I mean subtle, actress who understood the specific needs of acting to camera. She puts in, I think, the single most multidimensional and arresting performance of the whole cast. It's relevant that she's young and beautiful, but she's an awful lot more. The movie version of von Bernborg is a complex character who can be playful one minute, imperious the next. She struggles with her role as a figure of authority while instinctively maintaining the rule of law. Those eyes are so expressive. Leontine would use cutaways and close-ups very effectively when it came to filming Dorothea. This actress could say so much with a single meaningful glance. And when the teacher and pupil collide, you get such a sense of inner maelstrom in this performance. Manuela's feelings are all on the surface, as you'd expect from a teenager. Von Bernborg's are battling beneath. But here's an interesting fact. Her fellow cast member, Hertha, didn't rate her acting at all. Funny, isn't it, looking back on it? She found Dorothea too restrained, too formal. Two things must temper our reading of Herta's view. Firstly, the fact that Leontine and Dorothea got on very well and worked very effectively together. In later interviews, Herta rubbishes both women and dismisses them as not really knowing much about filmmaking. Herta reserved her love and respect for Karl Froelich, who she claimed was the real maker of Mädchen in uniform. Secondly, her memories of Dorothea's performance being too restrained suggest to me only that Dorothea was a natural film actress who understood that her words and actions needed to be tempered to be palatable to a cinema audience. The finished product, her thoroughly realised portrayal of a teacher pulled between duty and compassion, proves that she was right. I'm reminded of Richard Burton bitching about Elizabeth Taylor on his first day of filming with her on Cleopatra. She can't act, he complained. I can't hear what she's saying half the time. And then Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the director, called him over to see the rushes, and Burton had to concede that he was wrong, that what seemed muffled lines and lack of expression actually translated as a mesmerising performance when caught on camera. At the very end of a short article about Dorothea in the New York Times, dated 1933, it's claimed that she got the part of von Bernburg because, and I quote, the director was a family friend. It almost suggests that the process was a casual one, a question of who you know. We can assume by director that they meant Leontine. Leontine has always been credited as the director of the film, except for a brief stint when, for publicity or political reasons abroad, Froehlich claimed the role for himself. If this is the case, then we can perhaps understand why Hertha felt distanced from the two women, feeling that they were very close and rather exclusive. 
Dorothea Wieck was in fact Swiss and born in Davos in 1908. She was descended from Clara Schumann. Clara Wieck was the composer and pianist maiden name. Her family moved around with the seasons, sharing their time between a country house just outside Stockholm as well as places in Davos and Berlin. The German expressionist writer Klarbund is said to have urged her parents to give her a dramatic education after meeting her when she was 14. Two years later, she was being trained by the master himself, Max Reinhardt, who based her in a theatre in Vienna. After a number of years of small parts, she was taken on by the Emelka Film Studios. Emelka are very interesting, a film company based just outside Munich and set up as a rival to Ufa, concentrating on mass-market entertainment. For them, she tended to appear in light comedies, all silent still at that point, often obscuring her dark hair under a blonde wig. So, by the time she was in her 20s, she had considerable experience on the stage as well as in the movies and had a pretty solid idea about the skills required for both. While the central relationship of interest in the film is between Dorothea and Hertha as teacher and pupil, this wasn't the only double act in the script. Dorothea, as Fräulein von Bernburg, also comes up against the formidable headmistress, Oberinde Stifts, played by Emilia Under, who was 52 at the time. Under, to my knowledge, had no previous exposure to the play, and who chose her for the role is now lost. Born in Latvia, this commanding character actress had considerable experience already in German cinema, from the silent era onwards and had appeared in some notable films, including F.W. Murnau's The Burning Soil in 1922. Murnau made this tale of a struggle over oil-rich land in the same year as his Nosferatu, and it remained lost until the late 70s when a single copy was discovered in Italy. Some of the names involved in The Burning Soil went on to great things, not least its screenwriter, Thea von Harbu, writer of Metropolis, and its producer, Erich Pommer, a giant of German cinema. Though not a lead actress, Unders' strikingly impish features and figure perhaps ruled that out in those days. She certainly found her way into some quality movies with notable cast and crew. The year before Mädchen came out, she had one of the main supporting roles in a movie called Abschied, or Farewell, which was directed by Robert Siermak, soon to go on to Hollywood, and co-scripted by Emmerich Pressburger eventually one of this country's greatest ever film writers. The role of the headmistress's sidekick, the Fräulein von Kesten, went to Hedwig Schlichter, also known as Hedy Kriller. Again, I don't know who chose her or how they came across her, but she's another inspired bit of casting. Just as in the play, the schoolgirls would provide the colour and energy and heart of the production. Some of the lesser parts went to young women who'd worked with Leontine on an earlier stage project. She knew them and could work easily with them. For many of the young cast members, this was their first film appearance, possibly even their first acting job. This was a deliberate move on Leontine's part, intending that the schoolgirls should come across as youthful and natural without any of the mannerisms of theatrical training. The casting of Ellen Schwanecker as Ilse Manuela's irrepressible and lively schoolmate nailed the part perfectly. This was the young dancer's first cinema role, and Leontine and Karl Froelich must have foreseen the promise of something electric in this bob-haired live wire. 
just one other casting decision is worth a moment's mention, and that's the part of Fräulein von Atoms, the smug teacher who tries to show up Fräulein von Bernborg for her weakness over the children. Von Atoms is played by none other than Erika Mann, daughter of the writer Thomas Mann and friend and fellow Munich resident of Christa Winslow. She was 27 years old. If you remember, it was Erika and her brother Klaus who helped get the play staged in Leipzig. It's highly likely that Christa got Erika the part, or certainly put in a good word for her. Erika was a trained actress and had been talent spotted by Max Reinhardt while still a student. But she was hard even then to categorise, already having turned to writing and journalism as her main interest. She was no stranger to controversy. Her presence is significant, I think. Erica, like Christa, had relationships with both men and women, and again like Christa, more successfully with women. She was bold and outspoken in her politics and came from the same bohemian circles as Christa. She's unlikely to have taken a part in a film that she considered slight or commercial. There are some references to the fact that she backed out of the film before it was finished, but I can't find any concrete information to back this up or to explain why it would have happened. So there, more or less, is the cast. All women. Some highly experienced, some just starting out. Nobody knew quite what to make of the project. Would it succeed? Would it disappear? But nothing quite like it had been done before. They were sure of that. Perhaps it was that excitement, coupled with the fact that there was no pressure, that brought out the creative best in these women. I've argued that assessing performances is, as far as I'm concerned, a valid critical approach to this film. But of course, there were other factors that made it exceptional, technical ones, and the location. When it came to staging Mädchen in Uniform, and I use the term rather than setting because there's definitely a feel of the theatrical tableau at times, Leontine Sagen was not only in her element, but at her artful best. She knew that recreating the Prussian boarding school could only be done on location and not in a studio, and she went to some considerable lengths to find the perfect place, with the perfect staircase. Next time on The Kiss, we'll find out how Leontine recreated the world of a Prussian boarding school and laid the foundations for an astonishing piece of work. The Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Berkey. It was directed by Mark Lingwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber and the original theme music was written by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions. <laughs>